The Russia-Africa summit is underway in St. Petersburg. Putin will be under pressure to reassure them after he terminated a deal allowing safe passage of Ukrainian grain exports earlier this month. Plus, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby sits down with VOA. I think the whole world, including African nations, uh, are seeing quite plainly the effect of Russia's decision to pull out of the grain deal, to not extend it. And later in the program, we examine the laws that govern what an American president can and cannot do if Russia were to use nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Today is Thursday, July 27th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. As we spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv on the last show, missiles and fighter jets were headed towards Ukraine. We'll get an update from her in a few minutes. First, though, the top story of the day continues to be the fallout from Russia's withdrawal from the Black Sea Grain Initiative. African leaders are currently in St. Petersburg for the Russia-Africa summit with Vladimir Putin, and the grain deal and food supplies are high on the agenda. Kate Bartlett has more from Johannesburg. It's a busy week for diplomacy in Africa, with U.S. Deputy Treasury Secretary Brian Nelson, China's top diplomat Wang Yi, and Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba, all on visits to the continent. Meanwhile, African officials are going to Russia, where Putin will be under pressure to reassure them after he terminated a deal allowing safe passage of Ukrainian grain exports earlier this month, a move criticized by the African Union Commission as something that could negatively affect food security, especially in Africa. African governments have been riled by the move, with one senior Kenyan official saying the axing of the agreement is a stab in the back. Wendile Silobo, chief economist of the Agricultural Business Chamber of South Africa, said the decision not to renew the deal has already caused an increase in global food prices, which could hurt parts of Africa. Our very hope is that as the African leaders go to the Russia-Africa summit, they can actually be able to have a much more sound conversation about the Black Sea Grain deal, amongst other things that, of course, will be negotiated there, so that this can go back on the table and the exports can go. Earlier this week, Putin himself sought to reassure African countries, relations with which have become increasingly important given Russia's isolation by the West since its invasion of Ukraine last year. Many African countries have been hesitant to take sides in the conflict. In a statement, Putin promised that Russia could replace the Ukrainian grain itself, both on a commercial and free-of-charge basis. Cameron Hudson, an analyst with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, said Putin is likely to use the St. Petersburg meeting, which starts Thursday, to appeal to African leaders' direct needs. So obviously he's trying to win back some friends uh, from his exit uh, from the uh, from the grain deal um, and also show that uh, he has the power to kind of cut bilateral deals with African countries uh, that put them, frankly, uh, more in his uh, in his need, um, which is exactly the position that, that he wants to be in. Analysts have noted that Russia has an outsized influence in Africa comparative to its trade and investment clout. This is sometimes because of the former Soviet Union's support for the region's 20th century liberation movements and because of shared anti-Western sentiment. At the first Russia-Africa summit in 2019, 
Putin vowed to double trade with Africa to $40 billion over five years. Instead, it has been sitting at about $18 billion a year, compared to China's record $282 billion worth of trade with Africa. Despite its relatively minor economic clout, Moscow is keen to use the summit to project political heft, says Dennis Riva, a researcher for the Institute of Security Studies in South Africa. So despite the fact that the level of investment has been low, uh, the level of trade has been low, Russia has very cleverly um, learned or, or uh, realized uh, some of the some of the problems that exist uh, between Western state, the European Union, and the U.S. and Africa, and has positioned itself to, in a way, to separate itself from from these uh, traditional partners. While the summit aims to position Russia as a global player, Russian media reported that fewer than half of the African countries attending are sending their heads of state. Analysts also said the issue of the Wagner Group, the mercenary group that recently attempted an aborted mutiny in Russia and which has operations in several African nations, will likely be raised on the summit's sidelines. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. As the Russia-Africa summit got underway on Thursday, much of the world was paying attention to what Vladimir Putin would do regarding grain. Putin withdrew his country from the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which allowed for the safe export of Ukrainian grain to world markets. Now, with Ukrainian grain unavailable, prices have spiked and there is fear of food shortages. Putin says Russia can make up for the shortfall and even donate grain to the poorest countries. Our country can replace Ukrainian grain, both commercially and as a free aid to the most poor countries in Africa, especially as we are again expecting a record harvest this year. We will be ready to provide Burkina Faso, Zimbabwe, Mali, Somalia, Central African Republic, Eritrea, with 25 to 50,000 tons of grain for free. And we will ensure free delivery of these products to consumers. Putin said that Russia was expecting a record grain harvest this year and was ready to replace Ukrainian grain exports to Africa on both a commercial and aid basis and honor what he said was Moscow's critical role in global food security. We realize the importance of an uninterrupted supply of foodstuffs to African countries. It is essential for social and economic development and for maintaining political stability. Therefore, we have always paid and will continue to pay special attention to supplying our African friends with wheat, barley, maize, and other grain crops, including supplying as humanitarian aid. Responding to Western criticism of Russia's decision to quit the Black Sea grain deal last week, Putin reiterated that Moscow left because none of the promises it was given about facilitating its own grain and fertilizer exports had been met. There is a paradoxical situation. On the one hand, the Western countries are obstructing supplies of our grains and fertilizers, while on the other hand, I will say it frankly, they are hypocritically blaming us for the current crisis in the world food market. 
Russian grain exports had never been part of any sanctions, and there have never been any Western restrictions on Russian grain or fertilizer exports per se. However, Western sanctions on the financial sector have deterred some shippers and insurers from working with Russia. Many Western politicians have said that Russia's exit from the grain deal is responsible and will result in the suffering of millions of people in poor countries. As we heard at the summit in St. Petersburg, Putin is blaming the West for food shortages and higher prices. For reaction from the White House, VOA's Misha Komodovsky spoke with National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. With Russia nixing the Green Deal, uh, which is vital for global South countries, uh, it turns out that two-thirds of the African leaders are not attending the Russia-Africa summit in St. Petersburg. Does this poor showing mean that Putin's food weaponizing strategy, as you called it, is now playing against him? Well, I certainly can't speak for the African leaders who decided to go or not to go or what, uh, what motivated them. I think the whole world, including African nations, uh, are seeing quite plainly the effect of Russia's decision to pull out of the grain deal, to not extend it, uh, and the effect that that's going to have on their economies, on food scarcity across the continent. And I, I hope that for those leaders who did show up in Moscow, I hope Mr. Putin is honest with them. I hope he tells them, I'm the reason why the food prices are volatile. I'm the reason why uh, you're going to have uh, more problems with starvation and with access to food and grain uh, in your countries. I hope he's as honest with them as, as he should be because it is, there's only one party responsible for the volatility we're seeing and for the fact that the grain is now going to be much harder to get out of Ukraine, and that's Russia. That's Mr. Putin. Russia, at least publicly, was trying to downplay the impact of uh, terminating the grain deal as if it was of not um, humanitarian but uh, commercial uh, nature. And uh, now Putin is offering uh, at least to at least six African countries free grain and is trying to um, sort of re replace Ukraine as uh, a major food supplier to African nations. First of all, is it possible and how dangerous are those uh, statements uh, from Putin? All I would tell you is that it, it, on the face of it, it, it looks like a desperate attempt by Mr. Putin to, uh, uh, to try to uh, paper over the impact that his decision to not extend the deal uh, is going to have on African nations. And obviously, each of these sovereign nations have got to decide for themselves uh, whether this new offer by Mr. Putin is legitimate and whether they want to accept it. But as I said earlier, it's, it's increasingly clear that nations around the world and in the global south uh, are seeing this, uh, this decision by Putin, this reckless, irresponsible decision by Putin for what it is. As for alternative ways of executing the Green Deal, besides ground, ground transportation, um, are the U.S. and allies considering sending um, convoys to sort of um, um, to um, escort the ships in the Black Sea? No, there's no active discussion now about uh, inserting warships into the Black Sea. I think we can all understand that that uh, would only escalate the tensions uh, and uh, an increase. Uh, the odds of conflict between the West and Russia, and that's not what we're looking for. What we're looking for is for the grain to get out. What we're looking for is for the deal to get extended. And short of that, we're going to work with our allies and partners uh, on other ground routes and maybe even river routes if some are available. That's National Security Council spokesman John Kirby speaking with VOA's Misha Komodovsky. 
You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Karish in Washington. Just what is an American president allowed to do if Russia were to attack Ukraine with nuclear weapons? We'll speak to a national security law and policy expert to find out. Up first, though, we check in with Anna Chernikova in Kiev. Anna, when we last spoke to you, Russian fighter jets were on their way to Ukraine. Cruise missiles were on their way to Ukraine from the Caspian Sea. Air raid warnings were imminent. <laughs> Tell us what happened last night. Are you OK? Thank you for, for asking and mentioning that. Yes, uh, I'm fine. But um, actually, what we talked about yesterday uh, did happen. After our conversation, in a couple of hours, air raid alarm was on and uh, first missiles uh, were, um, were reported uh, in the Ukrainian airspace by the Ukrainian Air Force. The main target uh, was uh, reported as uh, air base in the west part of the country, in Khmelnytsky region. The, the missiles were destroyed in different parts of the country, including central part and western part. But the main target, according to Ukrainian Air Force uh, and air defense, uh, was this air base in the Khmelnytsky region. And were there any casualties or any injuries as a result of the attack or the falling debris, as often happens? Uh, there are some damages, but no injuries uh, reported. So for the, for the moment, debris damages were reported, uh, particularly in uh, in the west part and uh, in the central part. Uh, but uh, nothing really, uh, nothing really too bad. Okay, thanks for that update. Uh, changing gears now to a developing story out of Belarus. Can you tell us what's going on there and why we ought to be concerned? Uh, well, uh, there is this uh, report by the Ukrainian Special Operations Forces of the Armed Forces of Ukraine. Uh, Wagner Group uh, is actually recruiting people inside of Belarus. Uh, we don't know exactly what type of people, but what was mentioned that uh, the, uh, this group of people includes servicemen of Belarusian army. And apparently uh, they recruit in order to uh, make these people fight in Poland, possibly in Poland and Lithuania. Of course, there is no confirmation of that. It's not, there is no, uh, let's say, official reports, particularly that there are any plans of invading Poland or, or Lithuania. So going over what we know, when Yevgeny Prigozhin went to Belarus, he started that base near the Polish border as Poland began bringing its military forces closer to the Belarusian border. Vladimir Putin issued a warning saying an attack on Belarus would be the same as an attack on Russia. And now Wagner in Belarus is recruiting soldiers potentially to fight in Poland and Lithuania. Do I have that right? Yes, exactly. And uh, Lithuania as well, They, uh, they, st because of this information, they also started to strengthen their forces uh, uh, next to the border with Belarus. So certainly a developing story we'll keep our eyes on. Anna Chernikova in Kiev. Anna, as always, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Steve. We just heard of the Wagner Group's activities in Belarus and with Russian President Vladimir Putin's recent announcement that nuclear weapons have been deployed there. Whether or not his claims are to be believed, the situation is growing tense. 
The AP's Karen Chamas has more. The assertion, if true, would mean that Russian nuclear weapons are now closer to Ukraine and on NATO's doorstep. The declaration marks a new stage in the Kremlin's nuclear sabre-rattling over its invasion of Ukraine. It can also be seen as another bid to discourage the West from increasing military support to Kyiv. While the US and NATO have not confirmed the move, some experts say Western intelligence might be unable to monitor such movement. Compact devices tipped with nuclear weapons for use on the battlefield can easily be concealed and transported without trace. I'm Karen Chamas. And with a discussion of nuclear weapons in Belarus, we take a look at a possible American response to a Russian nuclear attack on Ukraine. For context and background on what a president is allowed to do in such situations, I'm joined by Dakota Rudsill. He teaches national security law and policy as an associate professor of law at The Ohio State University. Well, as uh, the facts and intelligence, as we understand them, stand right now, I think that it would be highly questionable that the president would have the legal authority under U.S. law to launch use of force against Russia just because Russia would use a nuclear weapon against Ukraine. Doesn't the president have, isn't he the chief executive? Can't he bomb anybody he wants? Well, that is unfortunately uh, a perception. Uh, I think both popularly in the country and I think uh, among too many practitioners uh, in government um, and uh, even in Congress that the president now has basically unlimited war-making power. Uh, But that is actually not the law in the United States. When you look at the text of the Constitution, Um, And when you look at the original intent of the framers of the Constitution, and when you look at the practice of the president and the Congress over the history of our republic, that is simply not the case. So then what gave Bush the right for a preemptive war in Iraq? Well, the George W. Bush administration floated the idea that President Bush could launch a full war against Iraq to remove Saddam Hussein and find any and destroy any weapons of mass destruction without Congress authorizing that war. That's what Vice President Dick Cheney and a number of lawyers in the administration said. Um, But that position was unsustainable as a matter of law and also as a matter of American politics because of our traditions and commitments. And for that reason, the George W. Bush administration backed off that unilateral presidential war theory. And instead, President George W. Bush went to Congress and got Congress to authorize force. And so that's the first of the four bases under which the president can order the U.S. military to use force. The first is that Congress authorizes the president to use force, either through a statute called an authorization for the use of military force, which is what Bush got for Iraq and before that for nine, you know, to uh, against Al Qaeda. The other way that Congress can do that is through a war declaration. Now, as we know, Congress moves very slowly. Nuclear weapons tend to move much faster. Um, what can the president do in time to protect our allies or our country should nuclear weapons start flying in Europe? Well, that's an excellent question. And so that gets to the three other bases, uh, legal bases under U.S. law for the president or to view the military to use force. As I said, that there are, there, are, there are four of them. The first is Congress authorizes the president to use force. So the other three in brief are 
number one, that the president is repelling an attack on the United States, Americans, our forces, um, and arguably our really, really close allies, like our NATO allies. Um, and that arguably includes some authority for the president to order a preemptive attack if it looks like there is an imminent attack coming from an adversary, right? So that's so that's one of those bases for the president to use force. However, in this circumstance, just because Russia were to use a nuclear weapon against Ukraine doesn't necessarily mean that Russia is imminently planning to launch any kind of attack on our NATO allies or on the United States. So I think that basis would be really, really questionable. Um, another arguable basis for the president to use force um, and another one where Congress has not authorized force in advance um, is uh, the idea that the president can use force to protect important American interests. And so if you think about the U.S. Uh, intervention in Bosnia in the 1990s, airstrikes against uh, uh, Syria in response to Syria using chemical weapons against its own people, U.S. airstrikes uh, against Libya. Um, these were these were basically uses of force at presidential direction without congressional authorization um, to protect important American interests. But according to law, what's the difference between the air raids in Syria versus uh, p- perhaps um, bombing Russia in retaliation for nuclear weapons in Ukraine? What's interesting here is that the way that the Department of Justice and uh, legal scholars analyze this question about when Congress needs to authorize a discretionary use of force by the president, right? Not a situation where the U.S. or allies or forces have been attacked, right? But where there's a choice that the United States has about about going to war. Uh, One of the criteria there is the risk of escalation, that that use of force without congressional authorization that the president would order would have the potential to escalate to kind of a a level which is just kind of general war. So so the risk of repercussions coming from Syria towards the United States is much lower than the risk of repercussions coming from Russia. That's exactly right. So in the Syria scenario, Libya, Bosnia, Haiti, none of these countries had any meaningful ability to attack the United States or to have a full war with the United States. Russia, on the other hand, even though its conventional forces are battered, could create a massive conventional war in Europe at you know at sea with the US Navy in an instant. Russia has a nuclear force just as strong as that of the United States. So the peril of a full war potentially, you know, na- nation ending and civilization ending is massive. The Russia case is nothing like Syria, Bosnia, Haiti, Libya, any of those. And so what I'm arguing in my analysis is that the president, I think, needs to think really carefully about launching basically what could be a just optional discretionary war with Russia just because Russia would use a nuclear weapon against Ukraine. And if the United States is going to have a punitive attack on Russia using conventional weapons um, in response to a Russian atomic atrocity, that Congress should debate that. Congress should authorize that. Um, And it shouldn't be just a unilateral presidential war. And we'll leave it there for today. Dakota Rootsill is an associate professor of law at The Ohio State University. Professor, thanks for your analysis today. Happy to be here. 
And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day. Visit us online at voanews.com and on social media be sure to follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Karish. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.